Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about the Senate impeachment trial showdown. Dr. Everett Piper joins me to talk about Christianity Today and President Trump, Pelosi's war powers resolution in Iran, and the Ukrainian plane was shot down in Iran. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk. Hello and welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's first five. A couple of days ago, we talked about in the United States Senate, Senator Josh Hawley put forth the resolution essentially saying, if the U.S. House does not send over the impeachment articles that the House passed on December 18th, he, Senator Hawley, saying the Senate needs to just deem them sent over and hold a vote and hold a vote, just up or down, move forward or not. And he's trying through that resolution effort to put pressure on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to say, you need to either send the articles over or drop it. Well, there's now a little bit of increased pressure on Nancy Pelosi. We had pretty prominent senators speaking up, saying essentially the same thing as Josh Hawley is saying, only these are Democrat senators. You had Senator Demo- Democrat Senator Dianne Feinstein from California saying, time to send those articles over here. Her quote was, so if it's serious and urgent, send them over. If it isn't, don't send it over. You also had Democrat Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia saying the Democrats need to move on and send the articles to the Senate. And Senator John Tester of Montana saying he's ready for the trial to start. Tester went on to say, we need to get folks to testify. We need more information. Nonetheless, I'm ready. I don't know what leverage we had. It looks like the cake is already baked. I could tell you folks. So those are senators. And there were other ones on the Democrat side of the aisle essentially saying it is time for Nancy Pelosi to send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate and move on or just drop it. Two other little tidbits, really entertaining about all of this. The impeachment passed the House, the two articles of impeachment on December 18th. My sense is that Speaker Pelosi and other leading Democrats want to leave the articles of impeachment as a dark cloud over President Trump's head. They actually don't want to have to move this case to the Senate because they know the president will not be impeached. And maybe once the impeachment is not, uh, the uh, Senate does not confirm and remove the president, maybe they'll, that unfortunate for the Democrats, will drop out of the news, drop out of mainstream news. They'd rather have the impeachment hanging over his head. But in the U.S. House are also rumblings on the Democrat side that the Democrat, some Democrat members are tired of this charade. A really funny thing happened. The Democrat House chairman, Adam Smith, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, actually said on television, I believe it's on CNN, said, I think it's time to send the impeachment to the Senate and let Mitch McConnell be responsible for the fairness of the trial. Later, the same day, after saying that on national television, Democrat House Chair Adam Smith said he tweeted out, uh, I misspoke this morning. I do believe we should do everything we can to force the Senate to have a fair trial. Obviously, Speaker Pelosi got to Chairman Adam Smith and just said, hey, you know what, buddy, I'm in charge here and you don't get to say things that I don't approve, which brought about the tweet from Senator Ted Cruz in the great state of Texas, chiding Adam Smith, saying, did somebody get sent to the principal's office? So all of this is a little bit entertaining, but I want to say in closing out the first slide, point out the serious place where we are right now. The simple fact is that in the Senate, this was handled very well by Majority Leader McConnell. He just said, basically, we're going to use the same rules in this impeachment hearing in the Senate for President Trump as the Senate embraced the same rules, 100 to 1, the Senate embraced the same rules in the Clinton impeachment. Very hard to argue what's you know fair for the goose can't be fair for the gander. But you have to know that the Democrats in the Senate cannot stand the idea. Some of the Democrat leaders cannot stand the idea that they cannot just make a show trial and actually expand the uh, the proceedings in the Senate beyond what they permitted in the Clinton impeachment. Just so you all know what's supposed to happen, 
the basic idea that's supposed to happen in the Senate is that the presentation is made by the first by the House managers to the senators. Here's why we impeach him. They can lay out whatever they want to say. They, they choose presenters uh, the House managers present those to the Senate. And then the Senate hears from the president's lawyers. After that, there can be a question and answer period. Senators can ask. You know, the House leaders, whoever they've designated, the president's lawyers, whoever he sends over. And then the senators can then decide what it wants to do about witnesses. So the whole point is the Senate, the Republican majority Senate under Mitch McConnell is retaining control of this possible Senate impeachment trial. And this is making uh, many people on the American left angry. They simply thought they could move this over after a very biased, a very rushed, a very unfair trial in the U.S. House leading to the impeachment, that somehow when they got over to the Senate, the Republicans would crumble and salute and give in to whatever it was the Democrats wanted to do in the Senate. This is what some of them thought would happen. And shockingly, in my view, Senator McConnell, at least so far, has held strong and said, we're going to do exactly what we did when we took on the impeachment of, of then President Clinton. So closing out the first five, I've got to say, I don't know what's going to happen in the next few days because I think there's increasing pressure on Pelosi. No one can make her do it if Senator Hawley's resolution does not pass and we're just sitting in limbo. I, I think uh, House Speaker Pelosi thinks that she's keeping the dark cloud over the president. But I think more and more Americans are going to see this was just a sham and a charade from the start. And if there were serious articles and serious evidence and serious wrongdoing, we'd be having a trial in the Senate. So I would say, you know, so far, in my view, Senator McConnell's winning and Speaker Pelosi, who has exactly zero leverage in this situation, is losing. And that, my friends, is today's first five. I mentioned at the outset of the show, we have a guest joining us today. He's been on the show at least once, I think a couple of times. And I'm very excited that he's going uh, joining us today by phone. This is Dr. Everett Piper. And if any of you don't recognize his name, but it's ringing a little bit of a bell, you may remember him as the author of first a, a statement to his then university where he was president, and then book called Not a Daycare. It was a brilliant piece, a brilliant way of making the point when he was president of the Ohio Wesleyan University, two students that they didn't come to college to be coddled. They came to college to learn, to engage in the robust debate of ideas, to listen to, to be subject to having to listen to ideas, even ones they don't exactly completely agree with. So he really uh, just really, that, hit that book and that whole message really resonated with so much of America because they were tired of thinking of college campuses as places where only the, uh, the outspoken left wing gets to speak and that, that college students have to be coddled and protected. So Dr. Everett Piper was the, the uh, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan for 17 years. Uh, he is now, he has retired from Oklahoma Wesleyan he has a great website, DrEverettPiper.com, uh, DrEverettPiper.com, and he continues to be uh, out in the public arena in the American political conversation. He's a columnist for the Washington Times. The reason I want him to join us today is to talk about a column I think many of our readers listened to or read and, and talked about, which was a column in Christianity Today, a Christian magazine calling for the removal of President Trump. And so we're going to talk about the column, talk about Dr. Piper's response, and just talk generally about the idea of what is it, the, the kind of heart and soul Christian American, how to think about where we are in America with President Trump doing so much good for conservatives in this country, but on the other hand, engaging occasionally in some conduct, some people uh, find troublesome. So I believe we have Dr. Everett Piper on the phone. Dr. Piper? Thank you so much for having me on. I'm always honored. Love to have you. Thank you so very much. And again, thank you for that great column and book about uh, this is not a daycare. But I want to just just uh, jump right in. I told our listeners before you came on, there was obviously a great deal of angst in America when there was the, uh, it was in fact the editor-in-chief, Mark Galley of Christianity Today, published an editorial in that magazine saying, captioned, Trump should be removed from office. And he's making reference to the impeachment, uh, which you know we all are aware, we were just talking about a moment ago, but it, he's even broader than that. He is kind of saying, or how I read it, 
he's kind of saying this president just is is not a moral guy. Look at all the bad things he's done in his life. You know, he should be removed. So I want to just start with uh, Dr. Piper. You wrote in the Washington Times, your column, which, by the way, for our listeners, the columns we're talking about are available for you to read at my website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, drop-down list of links. You can see these articles and read them yourself. But you wrote an article in the Washington Times, your column, Christianity Today versus Donald Trump. I was wrong about Donald Trump, and so is Christianity Today. So to start with, Dr. Piper, early on when President Trump was in his campaign, you were approached about having him come to the university you were then president of Oklahoma Wesleyan, and you declined that. So why at that time did you turn down the opportunity to invite candidate and then President Trump to Oklahoma Wesleyan? Well, at the front end of the campaign, uh, during the primaries, I was opposed to Donald Trump. I said that I would not have a man on my campus, a Christian campus, a man that owned casinos with strip clubs in those casinos, a man that had been pro-choice and proud of it, a man who boasted of his infidelities in his books, et cetera, et cetera. I said, this is not a man that represents the Christian worldview, the Christian behavior of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. I will not have him on my campus, and I will not vote for him. Now, fast forward. Since that time, he has become president. And since that time, he has been proven to be pro-choice. Since that time, he has defended my religious freedom and yours. Since that time, he has appointed constitutionalists as judges across the federal judiciary as well as the Supreme Court. Uh, What I'm saying today is that just because Donald Trump has a checkered past, and he does, And just because Donald Trump used to support positions that I think are unbiblical, such as abortion, which he no longer supports, and just because he has questionable phone calls that are ambiguous to foreign leaders and acerbic tweets, does not mean that Christians should step away from him and vote against him. In fact, I think we're obligated to stand with the man in the same way, in the same way that a third century excuse me, fourth century Christians stood with Constantine. Constantine was a bad man. Constantine was educated in the courts of Diocletian, who executed Christians for recreation. Constantine, even after he made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire, was guilty of some uh, very nefarious uh, behavior, which included the suspected execution, execution of his own relatives. So here's my point. Should we be thankful for Constantine because he released the church to do its good work? Absolutely. Even though Constantine had questionable things in his past and maybe even in his present, God used him providentially to release the church to do its good work. And women were elevated, and children were given rights and dignity. The church was released to be the salt and light to a culture that was dying, a culture that was dark, and a culture that was corrupt. I'm grateful for Constantine, and I'm grateful for Donald Trump. Mark Galley was wrong in in penning his article. I was wrong when I stood against Donald Trump. There are things that are more important than ambiguous phone calls and acerbic tweets. Well, you have to know, well, actually, I don't know how often you're able to listen to my show, but you have to know I'm right with you. I will say, I think the time to question any candidate's past, their behavior, their beliefs, is during a campaign, and especially during a primary, where if you know that you basically stand with the conservative side uh, on politics and issues of religion and faith and politics, you need to look at the spectrum of possible candidates, and that is a time to assess them and perhaps to think, a particular person's past may make you uncomfortable with them and somebody else's past who's in the ballpark of your beliefs seems to be more like what you believe in. So, but once you're, you know, it's a, uh, it's a funny thing. If Galley's had written, if Galley's editorial had appeared, um, you know, early on in the 2016 primary and you had other people you could consider, but what Galley is really was doing was, or the Christianity Today was taking the position was, after he's been elected, all that he's done, he still should be attacked and removed 
for things that we've known about him for a long time. I mean, no, it's a, I, I think there's just a right place in Christianity to really uh, closely vet people as your leaders. But then once they're in, as President Trump is, you have to look at what they're doing as a leader now. Does that argument resonate with you? Yes, and I also learned something else from Oz Guinness. During the primary season in 2016, I was privileged to be studying at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics in Oxford, England. And Oz Guinness, one of our foremost apologists of our day, a C.S. Lewis of our time, was one of my professors. It was right after the Brexit vote. I was in class very early that morning, and I had the privilege of being there alone with Oz, having a cup of coffee with my hero. And I asked him, what do you think about Brexit? He said, I can't vote in England any longer. I've been in the United States too long. But if I could, I would have voted to leave. Well, I was stunned because Oz is white collar. Oz is educated. Oz is the intellectual of intellectuals. And it was the intellectuals and the elite, the white collar that wanted to remain with the uh, European Union. And it was the blue collar, the working class that wanted to leave. But Oz was saying he would have voted to leave. And I said, Oz, why? And here's the point. I bring this story up. He said to me, Everett, we've talked about this. If you want freedom, always vote for the covenant. Never vote for the hierarchy. He said the European Union, France and Belgium are hierarchical. It's top down elites telling everybody else how to live. The Magna Carta and the United States Constitution are covenantal. It's bottom up individual freedom and personal responsibility. If you want freedom, always vote for the covenant, not the hierarchy. The Democratic platform is hierarchical. The Republican platform is covenantal. We don't vote for a king in the United States. We vote for an idea, and the idea is the Constitution, the covenant. I love that. I've ne- I love that point. Thank you. That's just a very a great analogy, a great point. Um, and and well, we talk about in the show many times. Brexit. It was a. It was kind of the real heart and soul, salt of the earth, basic citizens of England that said, "Yeah, I, we we don't want to be part of of a European Union anymore." But back to Christianity today. One more point I want to get at is, I think that um, some people during the primary chose other candidates to support. But more and more Christians came on board slowly for the Trump campaign during the primary. And then during his presidency, even more so, you see more Christian leaders coming behind him. And it is precisely for the reasons you said, because they see a president who is actually standing up for the pro-life cause in, in real ways, in meaningful ways, not just talk. And standing up for uh, the very uh, the protection of religious uh, liberty, and you know, I have a sense. And I'm curious if you share it. I have a sense that that President Trump, you know, uh, first of all, no no candidate or president's ever been perfect, but I do believe President Trump is not just um, not just listening to some of his supporters. I have a sense he's slowly embracing the importance of the Judeo-Christian founding or basis of America. He's starting to recognize the importance of that Christian ethos in what created America. That may be a bridge too far for you, but what do you think? Well, I I agree with you. I I don't know whether the man has had a conversion experience or not. I don't know if he has claimed that he's now born again. I won't make that claim for him. I'll let him do that. But what I do know is this. Under the Obama administration, I had to sue the Obama Um, Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services because they were forcing me to provide transgender accommodations on my campus. And I said, no, it won't happen. They were forcing me to include abortifacient drugs in our health care package. And I said, no, we won't do that. I had to sue those two organizations under Obama. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Trump took over, I was invited to Washington, D.C. to speak at a ceremony where his Department of Health and Human Services and Department of Education was launching a new division of religious freedom. And I was there to speak on its behalf. I took the podium and I said, man, is it good to be here thanking you rather than suing you. (laughs) Very, very good. I love that. And actually, I forgot. I had read about that and I forgot about that. Yeah, just the idea of having a division related to religious freedom is such a signal to America that we're, we're re-embracing this idea. 
uh, we're, we're re-engaging with the notion that religious freedom is, is a, it's our first freedom and the First Amendment, and it is a foundational idea to preserving America's culture and, and our, our future, our very future as a country. Um, I want to turn, um, I love getting to talk with you, and we could probably talk much more about Christianity today. And I want to know if any other points you want to make about to, uh, to refute or respond to the Christianity Today piece about removing President Trump. Uh, about what, how, and this is really kind of how Christians are supposed to square the idea of a man whose life has been lived imperfectly and, and broadcast living that imperfection with choosing him to be our leader. And I want to get at the idea that in part, you have to recognize in politics, the reality is you're only going to have two choices for president. You're going to have two paths forward for America. And I think a legitimate consideration for Christians is to recognize which path is this particular party on, political party, versus the other political party, leaving aside the, the character of the individual who serves as president? Do you think that's valid? Democratic party that believes in aborting children, in other words, terminating children, killing children up to the point of birth. And in some cases, they even argue for post-birth abortion. We can vote for a party that does not believe in religious freedom, believes you and I should have our voices silenced. You can vote for a party that believes that women are not biological facts, but fabrications and fantasies of dysphoric men who want to play dress up and make believe. You can vote for a party that wants to take your right as a woman away from having your own bathroom and your own sport and your own scholarship at the collegiate level. We can vote for this party that seems to be more interested in mourning the loss of Soleimani than hoping for the victory of the United States and Donald Trump. We can vote for that party, which I would argue is a party of hierarchical elitism and arrogance, or we can vote for a party that believes in the constitutional freedoms and the self-evident truths that have been endowed to us by our creator. It doesn't matter who the king, quote-unquote, is. What matters is the ideas of the government structure that gives you more freedom, and there's no question which one it is. Dr. Piper, that was so well said. I think after we're finished, I'm going I'm to transcribe. That was a perfect summary. I want to turn to one other topic today, because well, we're so glad to have you on, on the show today on America Can We Talk. You wrote a column in Washington Times responding to the uh, very, very famous uh, Hollywood producer, filmmaker, actor, Ron Howard, who tweeted out on January, or I don't know if he tweeted or just made a statement on January 1st, uh, about the idea that President Trump, referring to President Trump as morally bankrupt and uh, as a human as a human being, and that he is hustling the American people. You wrote a great column in the Washington Times uh, responding to this sudden explosion of concern about morality out of Hollywood and Ron Howard. I'd love to have you just tell our listeners your response to Ron Howard attacking President Trump as morally bankrupt and as a person who's hustling the American people. Well, I'm grateful that Ron Howard and Hollywood all of a sudden care about morality, and I say that with a little bit of a smirk on my face. I mean, this is the club. This is the group of elites who have mocked us. They've maligned us. They've told us that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as it works for you, quote-unquote. They've, they've suggested that the rubes and the stupid folks in Heartland America are trying to cling to our God and our guns. They've exposed themselves on their red carpets, but yet they claim to be against the subjugation of women. They claim to care about children at the southern border with Mexico, but they execute children in their Planned Parenthood clinics across the nation and they celebrate it. I could go on and on. The hypocrisy of Hollywood to turn around and start lecturing you and me about morality, please. They've sold us the snake oil of sin in their movies and in their entertainment for decades. And now they're going to turn around and try to sell us morality in their traveling medicine show. There are millions of us across the country that could care less what Ron Howard in Hollywood thinks about morality. And frankly, they can take their sideshow and their circus and they can go elsewhere. Dr. Piper, I cannot thank you enough. First of all, I will talk quickly for our listeners. One of my happy listeners sent me a text message saying, I misstated the name of your university where you're president. Sorry, it's Oklahoma Wesleyan. I believe I said in other states, Oklahoma Wesleyan, where you were president. You now are active in writing. And I want to tell if our listeners want to read more of the things that you write 
And I'm telling you folks, you do want to read more of the things that Dr. Everett Piper writes in his Washington Times column. Tell, tell people how they can find you. My Twitter handle is Dr. Everett Piper. That's D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. And you cited my website at the beginning of the show. I'll repeat it. It's DrEverettPiper.com. You can find my columns there, or you can go directly to the Washington Times. And please, if you're interested in me speaking at any of your events, whether it be political or church or a retreat or whatnot, I try to make myself as affordable as your budget can uh, provide. So you can contact me on the website for that. Dr. Piper, thank you so very much for taking time to join us today in America Can We Talk. It was great talking with you. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, folks, I will tell you, by the way, that Dr. Piper, I haven't, we are based in Dallas, Texas. I have invited Dr. Piper to Texas at least once. I think twice he came and spoke to different groups. If you think he was engaging in that 10 or 15 minute interview, you can't believe how great he is in person speaking. He is engaging. He is uh, really able to lay out the argument on so many issues that uh, about where we are as a country, what the issues, how important the issues are that we face, how we repair or fix our country, what we need to do to bring back our country's, uh, you know, dedication to the principles on which we were founded. He's just, he's extraordinary, fun to talk to. I encourage you to invite him as a speaker as I have in Texas. And again, it was Dr. Everett Piper, and I hope you all enjoyed that interview, and I urge you to follow him. He's, a, he's just a great thinker. I want to turn to talk about two things happening in Washington. Uh, one has to do with uh, the House, the United States House, uh, a representative, sadly controlled by the Democrats. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has a war powers resolution coming up. And as I came to do the show today, it was being reported. It was going to be voted on today in the U.S. House. And I saw one headline saying the Democrats getting kind of nervous. They might not want to actually call it it, not, not, not want to bring it on the floor today, but apparently to be voted on the floor of the U.S. House today, this War Powers Resolution. And the basic gist of it is, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats claim they are reacting to what they thought was an ill-advised decision by President Trump to order the military to take out Iranian General Soleimani. And if you didn't hear this show yesterday, I urge you to go back and listen to the interview I did yesterday with Claire Lopez. She is with the Center for Security Policy. She is a walking encyclopedia of Iranian history, Iranian politics, Islamic doctrine. She went through and explained for our listeners the depth of evil represented by this man who American, fortunately for us, American troops took out uh, with a drone attack, this Iranian General Soleimani. This is a guy who has caused untold misery and harm, the killing of American soldiers, the maiming of thousands of people, uh, the, being in charge within Iran uh, of, of attacking the what the government viewed as enemies of the Iranian country, kill, killing his own people, orchestrating, helping, killing other citizens in other countries. The guy has a history of hating America, engaging in Islamic Jihad since the time and including back to 9-11. This is a guy who should have been taken out decades ago. So this guy, this shooting of this one, this taking out this one particular Iranian general is the reason Nancy Pelosi is urging the U.S. House to pass the, the uh, a, uh, she's calling it the War Powers Resolution. Essentially, uh, it will say that, or it is reported that what we'll say is that the uh, president uh, once from the day of his passage for, and up until 30 days, beyond 30 days, can take no further action against Iran without congressional approval. She's bemoaning, and other Democrat leaders are bemoaning, that President Trump didn't contact the member of the U.S. House to let them know of this planned attack on this guy. Now, I have to tell you, folks, I think it's important to take a moment to understand what is all, all of what is involved here. It really matters to understand what Nancy Pelosi is trying to propose. Number one, there is in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2. So the Constitution does grant the United States Congress, in the words of the Constitution, the power to declare war. That's in Article 1. And the president, president's power, the president, presidential 
power in the Constitution, Article 2, includes that he is the commander of chief, in chief of the Army and the Navy and the militia. He's actually understood to be the commander of all U.S. armed forces, and he is entitled to conduct the foreign policy of America. So there has been some tension and perhaps intentionally created by the founders between when does the president have to go to Congress and ask them to declare war? But the idea that Nancy Pelosi is trying to say that she's gonna use the war powers clause in article one to say that Congress has to be notified every time the president decides to go after one of the Islamic jihadists who are leading the efforts of killing Americans, attacking Israel, killing their enemies all over the Middle East, that somehow the president has to run over to Congress every time, it is completely implausible. But that's just the first point. Implausible to suggest that somehow the president's going to have to go and talk to Nancy Pelosi and her ilk to decide whether he can take out the next bad guy that he may target. Uh, number two, you may recognize there was a war powers resolution passed in Congress in 1973. That war powers resolution was directed at President Nixon. It actually passed the House and the Senate. It went up to President Nixon. He vetoed it, and the Congress was able to override his veto. It was an assertion by Congress of an aggressive, more, a more aggressive role in control of obviously it was then the Vietnam conflict. But many legal scholars question the constitutionality of the 1973 War Powers Act. Not clear if it's even constitutional for Congress to try to take away from the Article II power that the president has as commander of chief and chief of the army and the navy, the control of our foreign policy. So we end up with a conflict there, not clear if that one was, was, it was constitutional um, and it never got challenged, uh, never was taken up to the Supreme Court as many people thought it probably should be. So back to what's happened with Soleimani. Yesterday, President Trump and, or his, I don't think he was there, but his uh, high level advisors held a meeting and explained to congressional leaders, House and Senate, all the reasons that led them to the decision to take out the Soleimani guy, to kill this Iranian murderous, horrific Iranian general. So after that presentation, two members of the United States Senate on the Republican side openly criticized the president's decision to take out Soleimani two members, Republican members of the U.S. Senate. One was Mike Lee, and the other one was um, uh, Rand Paul, Kentucky, both of them being kind of more libertarian-esque. And they criticized the decision by the administration to take out Soleimani. But here's where it gets interesting. So on the House side, Nancy Pelosi can introduce this war powers resolution. She's got the majority in the House. They're probably gonna pass whatever she tells them to pass. But then it goes to the Senate side, and in the Senate, you know, we have a very bare Republican majority, very slim. So you already got two people questioning the president. You got Rand Paul and Mike Lee questioning him. You have the other wobbly Republican senators who can never be counted on in any context to do anything. So, you know, you know who they are. We always talk about them on this show. Murkowski is one, Collins, you know, just and Romney, completely unreliable. So there, there is concern. There's a slim chance that this war powers resolution would actually pass the Senate also. So then the question becomes, okay, so they've got the House passed and the Senate passed, so this resolution would go up to the president, who would obviously veto it. So you have President Trump clearly would choose to veto it. So then you have going back to the Senate and the Senate could not possibly override the president's veto. They don't have the two third majority to override the president's veto. But some people on the Democrat side are arguing that this does not have to go to the president. They're actually arguing once they pass it, it doesn't matter. The president doesn't get an opportunity to be presented with this, to veto it or not. They would like to treat, if they get the House War Powers Resolution passed by the House, which it will pass, and the Senate side, you know, we don't know, but maybe they want to say, okay, done deal. 
he, he must comply with the American, you know, he must comply with, comply with Congress, he must run everything he wants to do by Nancy Pelosi and uh, in the House and by the, the Senate Republicans. So, and the Republicans are saying, that's completely crazy. You know, this is, if the president vetoes it, you're done. We don't have two thirds majority and this is of no consequence. And I want to get to a constitutional point that is, and by the way, Lindsey Graham, who, you know, sometimes he's on fire and sometimes I, I don't know what happens to him. But right now, Senator Lindsey Graham has been pretty darn uh, good. He's been good on this. He's definitely openly attacked and accused both Rand Paul and Mike Lee, uh, essentially em empowering the enemy, empowering Iran. He's saying, if you want to take away President Trump's power to conduct this endless battle against Iran. And to be clear, if you didn't listen to the show yesterday, Claire, Claire Lopez joining us, she was saying Iran has its constitution. It is a jihadist country by the terms of its constitution. It is intending, its entire purpose of its existence is to attack America, Israel, and eventually to control the entire world under Islamic caliphate. This is in the the constitution of Iran. So that country, since this constitution came to be in 1979 after the Islamic revolution in Iran, since 1979, Iran has been at war with America and Israel and everybody else who's not their version of Islam. So back to where we are, what Lindsey Graham is saying is these two jokers, I'm sorry, I, I used to like Mike Lee. I, even, I like both of them actually. Sometimes they're good on some issues. But these people are so libertarian-esque that they're more willing to hamper the president of the United States and his ability to fight against the Islamic jihadists who run the country of Iran. They're more willing to essentially prevent the president from fighting and therefore more willing to let Iran win. Or as Senator Lindsey Graham said, they are empowering our enemy, and they are. And this leads me to the kind of last point I'm making. This we'll have to. I'll follow this war. This uh, what happens? War powers resolution. But I want to make one final point. The Constitution. The founders intentionally put many things in the Constitution with the idea or the goal of creating some tensions, forcing the American government, the, the, the representative branches to work with each other, to listen to each other, to, you know, to come to agreement. The constitution assumes that the elected members of Congress are on America's side. The presumption that you would say that the Congress, you know, has the power to declare war, but the president has the power to, you know, to, to be the commander in chief, to conduct our foreign policy, to be head of the military. You assume, they would have assumed that the, every, the people serving in our Congress would be on America's side. And I'm telling you, what has happened in part in Washington is that the radical left that has taken over the Democrat Party that now rules the Democrat Party is simply not playing on the American playing field anymore. I am not saying that every Democrat in this country, I'm not even saying every Democrat in the House or the Senate is profoundly anti-American. I'm saying that the anti-American leftist mindset that rules the Democrat Party in Washington today can no longer be counted on to be on the side of America defeating our enemies. They're endlessly looking for surrender, capitulation, consensus. Is why we had that idiotic Iranian deal under President Obama, which enabled, deliberately enabled, the country of Iran to continue developing nuclear weapons because the very agreement itself that had procedures that allowed inspections, and that was the whole thing they were touting, well, we have inspections. And so if we have a, you know, they're not gonna develop nuclear weapons, they promise and we get to go inspect, except it carved out of the agreement, the areas where the inspectors were allowed to go, the most logical places where Iran was developing its nuclear weapons. The Iranian deal that enabled, not, did not prevent Iranians from developing nuclear weapons, it enabled it. It's that we Americans spent billions back to Iran, which are into their coffers, into their bank account, into the, the pile of money they have 
to spend fomenting terrorism around this world. That's what Iran is. That's what Iran does. And you had the American left backing Obama and the Iranian deal 100%. You have these people in Congress who can, in the Senate, who cannot figure out that an Islamic jihadist country like Iran is a serious problem and that we better be on top of it, willing to fight them, willing to frighten them, willing to step on them, willing to shoot them down. If you can't understand that, if they can't understand that, they have no business being in the House or the Senate or anywhere else in power in this country. And this is the power, the problem with this War Powers Act. This is the question of the War Powers Act. What would we do if you had the War Powers Act resolution passed in the House, passed in the Senate, Democrats want to deem it, okay, it's a law now. It doesn't have to go to the president. It's just a law now. What happens when President Trump must take out some other horrific, militant, Islamist, jihadist murderer, and he has to wait and run it by Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, or else we can't defend ourselves? I mean, we shouldn't be at this point, but it's a dangerous point. It is a constitutional crisis point. If the Democrats in the Senate House really think they're going to decide whether President Trump can or cannot defend America. We'll stay on this war power, say more about that in another show, I am sure. Last quick topic for today I wanted to mention uh, just briefly, and it does relate to Iran also. It's a very quick story, but you likely saw the news a couple of days ago that a Ukrainian airline taking off from Iran inside the country of Iran, taking off from the airport, uh, ended up crashing and killing everyone on board. I think there's 173 people on board. Obviously, horrible, horrible thing. And it just, you know, you people just can't stand any of these kind of things. You hate to think of the, the loss of innocent life and all of that. There were people of all sorts of backgrounds and countries on that plane, but it, w- it was a flight taking off uh, in Iran, and the um, the flight that was um, that crashed was um, what it was Ukrainian and was headed headed for the city of Kiev. But I want to make a couple quick points about it. Number one, video from the ground seems to show that the plane was shot down. Iran first put out a statement about something like technical difficulties. Plane was already turning around. Maybe there's a fire on board. We don't know. But video seems to show, and now American authorities are saying they believe the plane was shot down. And so, you know, this is, I I want to, I'm making a really important point about Iran as I wrap up this show today, but I want to make something clear about this. There is no argument that American forces or any other country's forces actually attacked a, a passenger airline, a commercial airline flight and shot it down. No one is saying that. Iran was trying to say, no, it was, you know, we had technical difficulties. What appears to have happened is that the Iranians and their lust for firing off rockets in order to, you know, defend themselves or make a statement about how they were uh, so outraged by America's killing of General Soleimani, which was a great move, but the Iranians were firing rockets at uh, U.S. bases, U.S. military places, places where U.S. military was kind of randomly. They had this you know, crazy thing. They, they launched off 15 rockets. A quarter of them didn't even work. They were just duds. <clears throat> but the point is, it appears that one of the Iranian rockets that they were trying to shoot at just to show the world how tough they are, to show they're going to defend themselves, may have actually been responsible for taking down this Ukrainian airline. Don't know that yet. The Ukrainian, the uh, Iranian forces probably never admit that. I will tell you that <clears throat> I did look up to find out about you know who uh, in in the um, in the world is banning flights over Iran and uh, Iraq. The FAA, our American FAA, has banned commercial flights over Iran and Iraq once this missile barrage started. So have uh, country, other countries have done the same thing. Uh, Poland's national carrier. Uh, saying no more flying flights over Iran, uh, Paris based Air France, Dutch carrier KLM have all said no way they're flying over Iran or Iraq while Iran is firing off all of these uh, rockets randomly and obviously not with not a lot of great control over them. They, they weren't even working and, and and none of them hit a target. And I'm just I want to close out by saying this the reason I bring this up. I am terribly sorry for the loss of any human life including people on that, that plane. It appears that this was a, a rocket hit by 
the um, hit by the um, Iranians own rockets. So, OK, you know, they that uh, that may have happened. I'm, I'm sorry if it did. But when America is deciding how whether and how to defend ourselves and what we should do, given the uh, anger of the mullahs in Iran, understand the Iranian military, while they we must fight against them, we must defend ourselves. We have to recognize that Iran and Iraq and other Middle Eastern countries puff up in their stories to the world, their depiction to the world. They puff up their power, how strong they are, how their their military is just going to take out everybody, you know, that they, they could do anything they want, that America better be afraid. Do not buy into this. I don't want war with Iran. I don't want war at all. I, I would love if we didn't have to have war. But we need to have a strong American military presence in this world to keep the loony regimes in this world, like Iran, in check. In fact, a little factoid, Iran's budget for its military is something like 2% of their whole budget. They don't have a lot of money. They're hurt, being hurt by our sanctions. They don't have a lot of money to be building their military. We need to not take into account and accept at face value the Iranian proclamations of how tough they are, how strong they are, how America better watch it because they're going to just destroy us overnight if they, if they wanted to. The Iranians can't control their rockets. They can't aim. They can't hit American forces, not that I want them to, but they can't. They likely took down this jet, this passenger commercial airline jet, because they are, they are just, I don't know if they're the right expression. I don't want to get you know, Laurel and Hardy kind of military. They are. They are evil. The Mullah, the, Islam, the Iranian regime is evil. The commitment they have to jihad in their constitution, their mission to spread Islam by force is dangerous and evil. But let us not get too carried away in buying into every one of their threats and their characterizations of themselves as so tough, so capable. It's a little bit of a, uh, an exaggeration to believe they actually have the kind of military power they keep trying to claim they do. And I think America needs to continue to have a strong presence as one last point I'll hit before I go to why all this matters to you. But when I asked the closing question yesterday when I had Claire Lopez on the show, is I asked her about, well, you know, what about the argument that leftists say and certainly that the Islamic extremists say, which is, you know, just get America out of the Middle East. If you just leave the Middle East and leave us alone, then everything will be fine. So I asked her, well, what is the reason? Why don't we Americans just pull everything out pull all our forces, pull everything out of the Middle East, let the crazies over there, let, let the, the Shia and the Sunni and the Wahhabis, you know, all attack each other. I mean, and, and why, why don't we just get out of there and maybe we'll stop aggravating them? Number one, she had a great answer, I'll tell you, is number two, but number one I want to mention is the Middle East is filled with people who truly believe in the jihadist mission of Islam. They actually truly, deeply believe in it. They intend to be a jihadist country. And the Middle East is filled with countries like that. It's, it, is just, it is just a fantasy to think that the only reason that all these jihadist attacks happen around the world, and all these terrorist attacks happen, is simply because American forces are over there in some countries. The attacks happen because jihadists, under the teachings of Islam, are driven to try to conquer the surrounding nations, the surrounding peoples, they're driven, as the Iranian constitution recites, driven to try to force Islam into domination over the world. The world is safer if American forces stay over there close enough for them to understand, don't even think about it. Don't even think about your next attack. That's number one. Number two, and the point that Claire Lopez made so well yesterday was the idea that you know we do have actually vested interests in that part of the world. We are among our major allies in the entire world as the country of Israel, who is surrounded by Islamic majority countries that would happily destroy them, destroy them, kill them all, except they recognize they would then be taking on America. America is in the Middle East in part to defend the Israelis and the Jewish state. But number two is there are also all sorts of shipping lanes, the um, international commerce, the use of shipping uh, in the ocean, the Strait of Hormuz, other straits that allow, that allow commerce to happen in the world. Do not think for a minute, if America came home, uh, it brought all our troops home, that the Middle East would somehow participate like a modern country and 
permit commercial shipping, permit the exchange of commerce through their seaways. They would not. So the American presence over there is not the cause of Islamic violence. Islamic jihadist mindset is the cause of Islamic violence. Okay, folks, I'm running out of time here. I want to quickly get to talking with you about why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So Matt, the wonderful producer, I'm so grateful he's there doing this show, helping me do the show remotely. Um, uh, The Senate impeachment showdown, McConnell has Trump Pelosi. He will not amend the Clinton era impeachment rules that pass the Senate 100 to zero. Pelosi's gamesmanship over new Senate procedures for witnesses and testimony has been shut down. She just hasn't admitted it yet. Even Democrat senators, Feinstein and others, and House members are withdrawing support from Pelosi's delaying tactics. A prompt Senate trial should lead to prompt dismissal or acquittal of this utterly baseless impeachment. Don't be surprised by grandstanding from Romney, but he will only embarrass himself. On Pelosi's war powers resolution in Iran, the basic constitutional tension, commander-in-chief has a duty to protect America, take action when needed, especially to destroy enemy combatants endangering Americans. Congress has sole power to declare war. Democrats tried to hamstring Nixon in 73. Pelosi's trying to do the same thing to Trump in 2020. Likely result, status quo, except Americans are witnessing in real time in an election year that Democrats' TDS, Trump derangement syndrome, makes them more for protecting Iranian Islamic terrorism than they are for protecting America and Americans. And the Ukrainian airline shut down in Iran do not buy into fears of a fearsome, well-drilled Iranian military. Nearly a third of their missiles were duds. Command and control of air defense were so weak as they caused a shoot-down of an airliner. And Iranian national annual defense budget reportedly around 2%. Okay, I didn't say it correctly earlier. The Iranian annual defense budget is reportedly around 2% of the U.S. annual defense budget. Do- doesn't mean Iranian military isn't dangerous or that they cannot inflict harm. It does mean there are no match for the American military if there is a U.S. president willing to use it. And President Trump shows every sign that he will. That's why Iranian de-escalation is likely. Escalation for the Iranians would be suicidal. And my friends, this is America Can We Talk? Thanks very, very much for listening. Tune every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. Email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. Please like, follow, subscribe, share this show. I just can't. I love your help in sharing the show, helping it to grow especially in this election year of 2020, when it matters so much for Americans to be more and more tuned into the issues facing our country, the choices we have ahead of us in 2020, and the great need we have among for the citizens of America to stand up and support and defend this precious country, the most important experiment in human liberty ever to bless this earth. I speak up for America because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you-